If you have a Bible, let me invite you to open it to the epistle of 1 Peter, chapter 2. This evening, we're going to be giving consideration to verses 9 and 10. My assignment for this conference is to preach on the topic of how the church relates to the world. And my goal is to address this topic through an exposition of 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. And I believe that we will see in these verses, that what we will see in these verses, is that the church is first and foremost called and expected and demanded to be distinct from the world, so that the church then can proclaim the gospel, the excellencies of him, to the lost and dying and undone world around her. When we first think about this question of how does the church relate to the world, our, mind, our minds trend towards missional zeal and evangelistic endeavors. And that may be a right place to go. But what I want to submit to you tonight is that our distinction from the world is primary to our proclamation to the world. Or you could say, maybe simpler, that our proclamation is dependent upon our distinction. And so my points for this sermon this evening are simple. There's just two of them, distinction and proclamation. So my answer to the question that I've been assigned, how does the church relate to the world, is that the church relates to the world by first and foremost being distinct from the world and then proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world. So this evening, we'll look quite simply at the church's distinction and her proclamation. Before we give attention to the text, let us go to the Lord in prayer. God in heaven, we thank you for bringing us together in this conference this evening to devote our attention, God, to your word and within your word to the very important topic, God, the doctrine of the church. And God, we know that we are all sinners God, even though we've been redeemed in Christ and reconciled to you, Father, we still are waging war with the flesh. God, striving day by day to put to death the deeds of the flesh and live by the Spirit. And God, we know that in our sinfulness, uh, the rightly dividing of your word, the rightly interpreting your word, the rightly understanding your word can be difficult. And so, God, we ask now that your Holy Spirit that dwells inside of each and every one of us as believers would illuminate the truth of your word, Father, to our hearts and to our minds. And, God, we ask this evening that you would do what only you can do and apply the reading and teaching and preaching of your word to our hearts and to our lives. And so, God, we ask of this grace from you as we now focus our attention upon your word. God, it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So looking at 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, we read, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. First, what I want to give attention to or consideration to this evening is the distinction of the church. If you look at verse 9, Peter strings together a list of Old Testament titles that were attributed to the Old Testament covenant people of God. 
These were, were titles that were given by God to Israel. God declared them to be a chosen race and a royal priesthood and a holy nation and a people for his own possession. These titles declare to Israel and to the nations and to the world around them that these particular people were distinct from the world in every possible way. These adjectives, if you want to call them that, proclaim that they were the ones that God had chosen out of the world to be his own people. This is seen as he carried them out of Egypt in the Exodus account. That God had made them distinct by his own sovereign omnipotent hand. When you read Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, or at least when I read those books, I'm struck with at least two thoughts. Now, there's multiple thoughts, but these two always come back to me. When I'm reading God giving his law to Moses on Sinai to his people, I am struck with who in the world is this God? And how in the world could I ever approach his holiness? And secondly, as you read these books, you will see in every single law that God gives from Sinai, he is demanding that his people be distinct, that they be holy, that they in every way be set apart from the world. God demands, Old Testament, New Testament, that his particular people be a distinct and separate people. And here Peter takes these familiar Old Testament covenant titles for Israel and applies them directly to the church, the New Testament covenant people of God. And Peter wants us to see this distinction. He is literally forcing us in these words to see that the church of Christ is distinct and contrasted from the world around us. Now, I don't want to be careful. I don't want to take 9 and 10 and just rip them out of their context to serve my purposes tonight. But I want you to see that Peter's making this distinction in this text. Peter begins here with this conjunction, but. This but is showing us that we who are described in verse 9 are being contrasted with those who are described in the verses that precedes it. When you look back to 1 Peter 2 verse 5, you read there where Peter says, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So already, before we even get to verse 9, Peter has described the church as living stones that are being built into a spiritual house who are a holy priesthood, and we are to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. He's speaking there of what we do in our corporate worship gatherings. After that, Peter strings together several Old Testament quotations to show that those who believe in Christ are distinct and different from those who have rejected Christ. He quotes from Isaiah 28, 16, where he says, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So then he says, So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe. Then he quotes from Psalm 118, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And then he quotes from Isaiah 8:14, A stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And then Peter concludes this thought in verse 8, and he says that they stumble over this stone of stumbling, they stumble over this rock of offense, because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. And then he comes into verse 9, but you, 
You see the contrast. But you, church, are different. For you, Christ is the precious cornerstone. You believe in him. You have not rejected him. He is not a stone of stumbling for you. He is not a rock of offense to you. You were not destined to stumble over him and disobey the word about him. You, Peter says, to the New Testament church, are a distinct people, set apart, and you are different in every way from those in verse 8. So you see in the very beginning with just the contrast of but you in verse 9, that faith, the God-given gift to believe that Jesus Christ is indeed the Son of God, that he is indeed the Christ, is the primary mark that distinguishes us from the world. It distinguishes us from those in verse 8. And then he goes on and he describes the distinction of the church in four ways. He begins right there in verse 9, but you, church, are a chosen race. Here Peter is distinguishing the church from those in verse 8. Unlike those that were destined for eternal destruction because of their disbelief, he says here that you were destined to believe. It's Ephesians 1, because God has chosen you in Christ before the foundation of the world, that he has predestined you for adoption. Here Peter is saying to us that you, church, are a chosen race, a spiritual people, elected by God himself unto himself. Now anytime we come upon this doctrine of election, and my goal tonight is not to preach on the doctrine of election, but man, we have to ask ourselves, not fight back against it, but ask ourselves, God, why me? God, I know that I am sinful and wretched and wicked and unholy and unworthy in every possible way. How in the world could I be counted among your chosen race? Well, Peter here, he's thinking back through Deuteronomy 7, 6, and 8. Listen to what we read there as God is speaking to his people. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you are the fewest of all peoples. It is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt." What I do want you to see tonight is there is nothing in us, there's nothing in you that causes God to choose you. For each and every one of us, we're dead in our sins and trespasses. We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And yet God saved us because he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. God saved us because he has been faithful to his eternal decree. What we see here concerning the distinction of the church in verse 9, first and foremost, is that God has chosen the church out of the world for his own glory. God has chosen the church out of the world to make known his manifold wisdom. Think through Ephesians 3.10. As the angels are looking down from heaven upon the church, they are seeing the manifold wisdom and glory of God displayed not by just any group of people, but by a distinct group of people that God has chosen unto himself, by himself, out of the world. The church is a chosen race, a sovereignly elected people. I often think of Spurgeon's quote on election. Spurgeon says this, 
I believe in the doctrine of election because I am quite certain that if God had not chosen me, I would have never chosen him. And I am sure he chose me before I, before I was born, or else he never would have chosen me afterwards. And he must have elected me for reasons unknown to me, for I never could find in myself why he should have looked upon me with special love. What I want us to see tonight is that there's nothing in us that caused God to choose us or to save us. What I want us to see is that it is God's election of us that causes us to be distinct. In the Old Testament, God chooses Israel out of the world and made them distinct. In the New Testament, God chooses the church out of the world and makes her distinct. The covenant people of God have always been and must always be a distinct group of people separated from the world. Secondly, he goes on, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. God has chosen us unto himself and he has made us to be a royal priesthood. This speaks to what we do and the access that we have. The Old Testament reference that Peter is quoting here comes from Exodus 19.6, where at Mount Sinai, as he is giving his distinct people his law, he says to them, and you shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now the royal priests serve the king and have access to his holy presence. The royal priests rule with the king and his kingdom. And here Peter is saying, you covenant people of God in the New Testament belonging to the church, you're a royal priest. You have access to God. You're serving with him in his kingdom. Back in verse 5, where we read a moment ago, it literally speaks of a royal house of priests. Peter here is speaking about the priesthood of all believers. He's talking about you and me here, not a distinct class that is set apart from the people of God, but the reality that every single one of us in this room that are a part of the church are priests, royal priests. This office of priest in the Old Testament was fulfilled in Christ, and now all believers in Christ Jesus are serving God as priests. We are all priests. In the Old Testament, the priests and only the priests could enter the Holy of Holies. But now in Christ, we each have unlimited access to the Father. Consider this correlation between the priests in the Old Testament and saints in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, God chose the priests. God cleansed them before their duties. God clothed the priests for service. God anointed the priests for service. God prepared his priests for service. God called priests to obedience. And now in the New Testament, New Testament, we can essentially say the same things. God has chosen us. God has cleansed us by the blood of Christ. God has clothed us in the righteousness of Christ. We have been anointing with the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit of God. When we look at our own lives, we can see that God is preparing us and sanctifying us for his service. And Jesus calls us to obedience. For he tells us, for if you love me, you will obey my commands. You see, God has chosen the church of Jesus Christ and made us to be a royal priest so that we can mediate the blessings of God to the nations and communities around us. And that ability to do so is predicated upon our distinction in the New Testament just as it was in the Old. Thirdly, he goes on, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Here we explicitly see the language of distinction, the language of separation. 
Peter says that the church of Jesus Christ is a holy nation. The word holy literally means to be set apart from, to be separated from, to be distinct from. It is the language of separation. And nation here is this Greek word ethnos. It literally means people. What Peter is saying to us here is that you are a set apart, distinct people because of what God has sovereignly done in your life. We have literally been chosen by God to be a distinct and set-apart people for the glory of God, for the worship of God, and for the service of God. We are a holy and distinct nation. One nation, one race, he says here, that is beautifully made up of people from every nation, tongue, and tribe throughout the ages, serving God as a holy nation. Fourth, he tells us, so you're a chosen race, you're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, you're a people for his own possession. Of all the titles or attributes or adjectives that Peter uses here to describe the bride of Christ, this one may declare our distinction more than all of them. What makes the church distinct from the world is the fact that God himself is in absolute possession of her. Listen to the language of Exodus 19.5. Again, the Sinai scene as God is giving his law. He tells the people of God there, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. This word possession here means to, to purchase, to acquire with a price. The church belongs to God and he has absolute possession of her because he has bought her and purchased her and acquired her with the ultimate price. God purchased the church with the blood of his only begotten son on the cross for our sins. And now he owns her. He possesses her. She absolutely belongs to God and to God alone. This necessarily means then that God is in authority over her. And in God being in authority over the church, he has blessed us and given to us his word that is to lead and guide his church. He's given his word that is to govern his church. Listen, we must live distinct lives as the church. And we do this by submitting ourselves to the absolute authority and sufficiency and governance of the word of God. God has given his church instructions on how we are to be distinct and how we are to be obedient. You and I do not have the luxury or the responsibility to decide what the church is or what the church is to do. You'll notice that every single exposition on the topic of the church that's been given in this conference is not from the minds of sinful men, but it's come directly from scriptures. God has given the church his word and we are to obey it. We do not decide what the church is or what the church is to do. God has chosen her and made her distinct. And he alone decides what governs and controls her. And he has decided that it would be his revealed will found in his inspired, inerrant, infallible word. And by his grace, he has gifted us and preserved his scriptures for us to guide us and to instruct us. And woe to the Christian or to the church that is not subjected to the authority of the word of God. You are merely left to your own sinful imaginations 
to decide what the church should be and what the church should do. An illustration may help us understand this, and I'll never forget this illustration that Paul Washer gave in 2017 at the G3 conference, and I kind of want to take it and reapply it here. So work with me for a moment, and imagine, if you will, for a moment that there is a king who rules over the land. He is about to leave for an indefinite period of time to go off to battle. Now this king has a beautiful bride. Her beauty is unsurpassed. Now the king keeps his bride clothed in the simplest and purest of white gowns. He keeps her hair simple. He leaves her face natural so that her natural beauty shines forth. And as the king prepares to leave for battle, he calls to himself a steward to care for his bride in his absence. And he gives to his steward a book of instructions on how to care for and to provide for his bride. The book offers pages and pages and pages of instructions. It stories his bride's history. And it tells the steward exactly what to do and what not to do as he cares for the king's bride in his absence. Now, after a period of time has passed, and the king remains away at war for quite some time, the steward has noticed that the kingdom of God has lost interest in the king's bride. And so the steward looks out at the world and sees what it is that they are attracted to. And he comes back to the bride and begins forsaking the instructions that the king has given to the steward. He dresses her in a shorter dress. He changes the simple, pure white gown for a colorful dress that gains the attraction of the world. He paints her face with ornate colors, hoping to once again draw in the interest of the world to the king's bride. He changes her hair to be in line with the desires of the world. And then this steward who has robbed the king's bride of her simplicity and purity and natural beauty and distinction parades her up and down the streets seeking to attract to the king's bride carnal men with carnal desires. And let me just tell you that this is all that he will attract The only thing that this steward will attract to the king's bride is carnal men with carnal desires, unregenerate men with unregenerate desires. And let me just tell you, church, if we do the same thing within the church with the bride of Christ, all that we are going to do is attract to this building carnal and unregenerate men. If we lose the simplicity, purity, and distinction of the church, the bride of Christ, all we will attract are carnal men who are unregenerate because we have caused the church to lose her distinction and dressed her like the world, and therefore we have caused her to lose her voice. Her proclamation is dependent upon her distinction, her holiness. Let me ask you, church, when this king comes back from battle and he sees his, lot, his bride, his wife, dressed up like the world, her purity and simplicity, her distinction is completely eroded away. What is the king's response to the steward going to be? Let me ask you, church, What is God going to do when he returns to receive his bride 
And we have dressed the bride of Christ up like the world and paraded her around before carnal men. I don't want to find out. I want us to understand that the church's distinction of, of utmost importance The church is not a fun house filled with laser lights and smoke and mirrors parading itself around like the world. It is a distinct group of people elected by God to be a chosen race, a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a people for his own possession. The bride of Christ is to be dressed in the simplicity, purity, and holiness of the word of God, led by its instructions. What I want us to see tonight is that our distinct, it is our distinction that gives us the ability to carry out our purpose of proclamation. Listen, very simply, if the church loses her distinction, if she parades herself around like the world, she will lose her voice. When we dress the bride of Christ up like the world and parade her before carnal men, we have then and there lost the ability to proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Listen, when we allow the feminism and egalitarianism and the social justice issues, the sexual revolution to infiltrate our churches, we will lose our voice and our ability to proclaim the excellencies of God. Our distinction is our ability to proclaim the gospel of Christ When the world looks into the church, they must be able to see that there is something different about her, that there is something distinct about her, that there is something that sets these people apart as different and holy from everything else that I see in the world. And when the world and the angels in heaven are looking within the church upon the manifold wisdom of God, if they do not see distinction, they will be unable to hear her voice. The church must be holy. She must be set apart. She must be distinct. So that the world, so that the lost and undying world around us can see, can hear the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So first, how does the church relate to the world? Well, she is distinct from the world. Second, how does the church relate to the world? Well, secondly, she proclaims the gospel What Peter says here, the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into the marvelous light. The first thing that I want you to see here is that God, by an act of his sovereign grace and mercy, has called us, wicked, wretched sinners, out of the darkness and has brought us into his marvelous light. It is a language of illumination. We were sinners, and as sinners, we naturally loved the darkness. We hated the light. We were hell-bound rebels that were blinded to the truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But God, out of his great love for us, for you, for the church, has effectually called her unto himself, out of the darkness and into his marvelous light. He has illuminated the truth of the gospel into our hearts and into our minds, Here's how Paul puts it in Colossians 1.13. Similar language, different author. He has delivered us out of the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. When he's drug us out of the darkness and transferred us into the light, it's the language that he has brought us out of sin and death and placed us into the kingdom of his beloved son. And here's why God has done it. 
Here is why God has made us to be distinct. Here is why God has called us out of the darkness and transferred us into the marvelous light so that we, a distinct people, can proclaim the excellencies of him. What we have to see here is that our conversion and our distinction serves an evangelistic purpose. So how does the church relate to the world? We're distinct from the world so that we can proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world. We are to hold the gospel before the world. We are to hold the word of God before the world. You ask ourselves, what are the excellencies of him? So Peter, we're purposed to proclaim the excellencies of him, or what are those excellencies? It's every word and every jot and every tittle that is found in the Holy Scriptures. Listen, church, or church is, the world does not need us to look like them. The world does not need us to act like them. The world needs us to look and act like Christ so that we can reach them and win them for the sake of Christ. And to do so, we must be distinct and we must hold the word of God before them. In doing so, we're holding God's word, God's scriptures before the world. And we call sin, sin. And we call what is right, right. And we call what is wrong, wrong. But the world must know that it is, the, that it is God who declares what is sin and what is right and what is wrong. All too often, people only hear what we think and what we believe. Listen, I have very little beliefs and very little thoughts of my own. I'm hoping and praying that every single day the things that I believe are being conformed to the word of God and that I'm holding this word of God before the world around me. And if we are not living by this book, the book that proclaims his excellencies, we're going to cause confusion in the eyes of the world. We must live, I think Peter is telling us here, we must live and proclaim this book. The greatest need of mankind, and I say this often in preaching in our homeless ministry, the greatest need of mankind is not food and clothing and housing and clean water or a better job or a better spouse. The greatest need of mankind is not even to be made morally better than what they are. The greatest need of mankind is to be reconciled to a holy and righteous God for which their sin has eternally separated them away from. And God has saved us and made us distinct so that we can go out into the world and proclaim his excellencies that are found in the gospel of Jesus Christ and lead lost and dying sinners to be saved. They don't need me to look like them and dress like them and act like them and be like them. They need me to be like Christ. They need the church to be like Christ. It's through our proclamation of Christ that lost and eternally dying men can be reconciled to God. That's what we're reaching them with. Chris, we talked about numbers. We're not going out in the world to attract numbers. We're going out in the world to seek and to save that which is lost. A couple of weeks ago at our church, I had the opportunity of preaching the Great Commission text in the Gospel of John. And in John 20, 21, Jesus says to his disciples, and it's a very different Great Commission text than what you see in Matthew 28. But in John 20, 21, Jesus says, As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. It's fascinating 
that we've been sent out into the world in the same way that the Father has sent Jesus Christ into the world. And we have to ask ourselves, well, how did the Father send the Son into the world? Or why did the Father send the Son into the world? And as we read our Bibles, we see very clearly that the Father did not send the Son into the world to bring about social justice, to assault human institutions, to improve people's socioeconomic conditions, to merely improve our morality. He did not come to make our circumstances better. No, Jesus says of himself that he came to seek and to save that which is lost. God sent the Son to save lost sinners. And look, these other things are not bad, but these other things are things that the world can do just fine on their own. And oftentimes the church thinks that this is its purpose to bring about social justice change and to break down human institutions and to make people's circumstances better and to bring about socioeconomic improvements in people's lives. Peter doesn't say that. He says that you are a distinct people so that you can proclaim his excellencies, the gospel of Jesus Christ. These other things cannot take priority or primacy over the true reason that God has saved us and made us distinct that we, as worshipers of God, would go and make other worshipers of God. Jesus is seeking for himself true worshipers. God is sending us out into the world to make true worshipers. Christ also is sent by God, and he was obedient in everything that he did. And now we are being sent by Christ as the Father sent the Son. The expectation is that we, too, will be obedient in all that we do that we will be obedient in our ecclesiology, that we will be obedient in our understanding of the doctrine of the church, that we will be obedient in our great commission efforts. God demands our obedience, and Christ is our perfect example. Let me just say that if we lose our distinction because of our disobedience to the word of God and our desire to be like the world, we will lose our voice. The world will be unable to hear us. We will have nothing to say. But even more importantly, if we lose our distinction because we've decided to parade the bride of Christ around like she's a part of the world, we're going to lose the favor of God that is upon us. If you look over in 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning of verse 8, he says, Finally, All of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. That's what we want to be. But then he says, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And let me just tell you, parading the bride of Christ around, ornately dressed up like the world, is evil. And God will turn his favor and turn his face away from us. I want you to see tonight that we are a distinct people. 
but that we also have a distinct message. Peter, again, just telling us that we are to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. It's a particular message. It's a distinct message. You and I, as the bride of Christ, we hold in our possession the only message that is able to save lost and eternally dying men. The doctrine we speak of is the exclusivity of Christ. It is the only saving message. Our message is able to save the lost. And with that, with that message, we bear a huge responsibility to tell the world about our God. We're a distinct people. We were called to proclaim the gospel, and that gospel is a distinct message. There's nothing else like it. There is no name other, under heaven by which man must be saved, and you behold that message. The world needs your distinction, and they need your proclamation. And lastly, in verse 10, you see our motivation. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Again, distinction. But here's the motivating factor for distinction and for proclamation. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We of all people know our unworthiness to be recipients of God's grace and mercy. And yet still, here we are, gathered together, saved, redeemed, reconciled, to God, having the abundant mercy and the riches of Christ bestowed upon us. What more motivation do we need to be distinct and holy and proclaim the gospel than knowing that there are lost and dying and hell-bound people in this world and in our communities and in our neighborhoods that have not experienced the grace and mercy that we have received. The fact that God has extended mercy to us should be our unquenchable motivation to be both distinct and to proclaim his excellencies. How does the church relate to the world? She's distinct from the world so that she can proclaim the gospel to the world. Let us pray. God in heaven, we thank you for your grace and mercy. And God, we thank you for the church. And God, we pray that you would continue to lead us in holiness, continue to cause us to be distinct. And God, continue to give us a voice to proclaim the gospel. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.